Dear God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the chance to unpack it in this way over the last few weeks. I uh, just pray you give me words to speak uh, and people in the congregation used to hear. Uh, and yeah, Lord, I pray that what we take out of this is things of your word, not things that I say or anything about me. I'll make this purely be about you. In your name, amen. Um, so in that vein of me wanting to make sure the word stands out, I've written like every word that I'm saying. So I'm probably going to look down here because I don't want to mistake dynamism and charisma for me doing a good sermon. Um, let's let the words speak. So if I'm not looking at you, it's because I've really intentionally thought about what I want to say and I don't want to misspeak. Uh, in that same vein as well, if I say something that's incorrect, please challenge me afterwards. Yeah, a little bit awkward if you do it in the moment, but I really want to have the chance to provide correction and then next week you know, speak into that and go, oh, look, I said this wrong last week. Uh, I'm going to be held to account. So uh, to start with, I'm going to talk about Ken Hall, who's the pastor of Willow Baptist, and who's formerly at St. Mary's Baptist. He once mentioned in a sermon, the key to a good sermon, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So with that in mind, today's sermon is about grace over works and loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to unpack this section, Galatians 6, by looking at some of the practical ways Paul suggests that Christians should care for one another in light of our salvation. Um, but first, I think it's important to consider the context this passage occurs in, some of which has been covered in the previous sermons. When you get to the last chapter in a series, people have pretty much said everything I'm going to say. Uh, but I've done enough teaching training to know that reviewing previously taught concepts is important. So I'm going to make sure that happens. Uh, normally with my class, I'd have like names that I pull out of a powder pop sticky and have to answer questions. I don't have that today, but I'm a little bit naked without it. Um, the passage I've been tasked with preaching on is Galatians chapter 6, but I want to be up front and sharing a little grievance I have with reading the Bible in its current format. Um, chapter and verse references are great, they're really helpful for us finding particular passages and reading along the same section, um, but they, the words weren't written with those in mind. Uh, so I think when Paul didn't put a great deal in, of thought into, or when this gets broken up in a few thousand years, it's going to be, you know... Chapter 6, I've got to make sure I have a clearly succinct section that is going to be referenced there. Um, I think instead he's summing up what he's talked about in the, the rest of his letter. He's written it with intent. Uh, this is kind of the, the closing remarks to a letter that should be read in full. Uh, as I researched and listened to sermons on this passage, it was you know, remarkable to me how often this section is preached in isolation, as if Paul got to the end of writing this intentional letter and then goes, oh, I forgot about this thing, a bunch of quick little dot points. Uh, just take them as they are and leave them there. Um, just in case you missed anything. But when we can instead consider this letter written in entirety, uh, it's not just Paul spouting off random thoughts, but tying together the things he's touched on throughout his letter. As he has throughout his letter, he's, as he concludes, he's stressing the importance of living lives under the freedom of grace. So I'm going to spend a bit of time reviewing the rest of the letter so you understand the context that I'm attacking Galatians uh, 6 with. So this letter was written towards the end of Paul's first missionary journey through southern Galatia. The audience to Paul's letter would have been familiar to him. He would have spent time over the years prior uh, going to these people in the region, telling them about Jesus and establishing the churches that they were meeting in. His outreach here was primarily to Gentiles, uh, establishing believers who weren't Jewish. They were hearing the gospel message without any prior cultural hang-ups or preconceptions. Prior to Jesus, for a Gentile to be accepted amongst the Jewish communities, they would have had to complete a checklist of sorts. They would have to be baptized, circumcised, and they have to make sure they adhere to the law from then on. Culturally, though, the Jewish people separated themselves from Gentiles for fear of being made unclean. Uh, the gospel message made this difficult for believers. How do they reconcile this, this cultural divide uh, between Gentiles and Jews? Were they now to just accept the Gentiles and live alongside them? Out of fear for how they'd be received within their own communities, many Jewish Christians began to teach that being made right with God was earned through faith in Jesus and doing the works of the law. 
They taught the Gentiles of Galatia that they'd be required to go through this checklist of baptism, circumcision, adherence to the law, and have a faith in Jesus in order to remain in the churches. This group are often referred to as the circumcision group or Judaizers. I've never written down the word circumcision so many times. It's bizarre. Um, they made, I'm like, you're thinking why they can't just say they've got like rituals and stuff. Uh, they made their way into the churches that Paul, so these, these Judaizers, the circumcision group, would make their way into churches that Paul had planted. And then they began to teach their messages to the people there. They would attack Paul's credibility, accuse him of not being a true apostle. Uh, and this is the catalyst for much of Paul's letter. He refers to the message of these groups as a different gospel that is being taught amongst the people. Um, in the previous chapter, Paul has rebuked the Galatians for their desire to please those who would follow the law, including Peter. In chapter 2, he declared, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He recounts to the people of Galatia that he called Peter to account for his willingness to turn away from a grace-centered view of faith, and has reminded him that even those who adhere to the law know they're not justified through their works, only through faith in Christ Jesus. He continues, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith, and not by the works of law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. To be justified means to be in right relationship with God, and as such to be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. Paul's really clear here when he says no one will be justified through their works. No Jewish, no Gentile, they can be justified through their works. He instead calls for the Galatians to be reminded that they're to live lives of freedom in their spirit, to be recipients of grace. Paul also makes a distinction he clarifies the law has its purpose. He says, for the, through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He recognizes that the law serves the important role of pointing to the need for Jesus. With my E3 class this week, we were looking at the story of Moses being given the Ten Commandments. After we read the story, I asked my kids, who's murdered today? Put your hand up. And luckily no hands went up, so I felt pretty safe going back to school the next day. But as you continue to unpack the commands, you can ask questions like, well, who's lied today? Who's really wanted something someone else has? Or maybe someone in your class has stolen something today. You might have taken something from your brother or sister's room without asking. To the group of eight-year-olds, it became really clear that on their own merit, knowing the laws God had given, they couldn't do anything on their own to make that right. Uh, they understood they'd done something wrong because they have these laws in front of them, but they can't fix what they've done just by saying sorry. Um, they, through the law, we're able to recognize the need for Jesus to make us right with God. It doesn't matter how well we know the law, we can still not be justified on our own. By returning to a life of reliance on the law, the Galatians are missing the whole point of Jesus' sacrifice. He came as the fulfillment of the law. To fulfill means to end, to bring about completion. Um, so if he's coming as the fulfillment of the law, the law doesn't need to have its same requirements met uh, in order to bring about redemption. By not treating him as such, it's like saying God hasn't already dealt with our sins. We still need to make amends on our own. Paul warned the Galatians in chapter 4 that now in knowing God but still relying on the law, they're falling back into a slavery of miserable forces. They aren't living in the freedom that comes from knowing Christ. In fact, the chapter in chapter 5, Paul warns the Galatians that they now risk alienating themselves from Christ due to their reliance on these rituals. Again, he likens obedience to the law as slavery. It's keeping them contained. They can't make their own decisions apart from that. To me, the Galatians here seem a bit like people who hire a cleaner to clean their house but don't fully trust that the cleaner's going to get everything the way they want it, so they do a pre-clean. Um, so they've now like, gone ahead, wasted their time, increased their own workload, and used up time for a task that someone else has designed and has been empowered to do. It seems a bit back to front to me. 
Paul doesn't completely discount the law. He recognizes its importance in teaching us how to live according to God's will. He quotes Jesus in chapter 5 as he says, The entire law is filled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. What he is wary of is people's identity and relationship with God being wholly dependent on maintaining certain practices and rituals. Much like the Pharisees in Jesus' time, their actions are not a reflection of their heart, but rather the identity that comes from their cultural context. Um, there's elements of wider church culture that I think are at risk of falling into similar patterns. We do lots of routines and rituals. Lots of mega churches have their kind of set design about how they do things to make it really intentional and purposeful, but they're missing the heart. Um, these calculated business decisions or ritualistic traditions can be dangerous patterns to follow, particularly if they aren't shaped by a heart to know Jesus or reflect him. Even something as simple as a rigid structure to a service or the songs that we sing can be prohibitive if the heart behind them isn't for making God known. Clearly music is a topic that's near to my heart, so I'm going to unpack what I mean with a few examples relating to music in church. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was part of a church music team, and we were working through our catalogue of songs and deciding which ones to get rid of and which ones to keep playing. Um, there was one song that I didn't feel like had a really clear congregational message, felt a bit like fluff, so I suggested cutting it. And I was met back by the person directing at the time, saying it's one of the main songs people sing along to. Um, so I felt a bit compelled to go, well, if people will sing along to an Eminem song, it's be quiet. If I start playing Lose, Lose Yourself, someone is going to sing along. Um, it's not the measure we should be using to, to justify whether things should still happen in church, because if people are coming or people are singing along. It should be our heart. Uh, are we trying, or do we have a heart for people knowing who God is or singing along on a Sunday? If we're focused on a sing-along, we can go down to the pub and sing along the case song. I'm sure it's going to happen in about 20 minutes. Um, our calling should be to know Christ and make him known. The why of what we do should outweigh the how of what we do. Similarly, I follow a few Christian musicians on social media, and as a result of this, in Instagram in particular, I will often suggest other Christian musicians they think I'll like. Usually just people who have the hashtag Christian in their post. Um, some of which play in megachurches. And so some clips that have been in my suggested feed have usually a drummer who's got the click track in their ear with all the cues about what to do. Uh, they build their big musical moment as the pastor finishes his sermon. Uh, he finishes with a prayer as the music rises, it climaxes. He uses a lyric from the song to really tie in what's going to happen. Um, and it just feels a bit like me to emotional manipulation. There's a, there's a purpose there of trying to get an emotional response. Um, and people can mistake that for an encounter with God. That's not to say God can't work in that situation, but the, the intentionality behind it isn't about let's make God known. It's about let's do this thing we know brings an emotional response. I can be brought to tears by the music and visual components of Up without a single person talking. So clearly, music has power. Um, but if we pair that with words that show us who God is, that reflect a congregational focus, reflect a theological focus, uh, then we're more likely to have a real encounter with God than just go, I felt a bit sad when I sang that song because I recognized how sinful I was because the music got really loud and it was really, really building to a crescendo. And the next time we come to, to worship on a Sunday, and that doesn't happen, then we kind of go, oh, where was God today? And the difference is we just didn't have that emotional response. My prayer for our church is that we'll constantly be checking in to ensure the things that we do are guided by making Jesus known or knowing him more um, rather than fall into a pattern. And we, if we fall into these patterns, we should call each other to account, like Paul's doing here with the Galatian churches. Paul challenges the Galatians on how best to use their energy. He says that you should use your newfound freedom that comes with grace to serve one another. Here he also talks about gratifying the desires of the flesh in contrast with the fruits of the Spirit. And this is the last section that leads into chapter 6, so I feel like it's really important to kind of go over. Uh, chapter 5 concludes, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul preempted this section by reminding Galatians of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. In living by the Spirit, we have to have a heart for others. The analogy of the fruits of the Spirit is really key and essential here because fruit needs to be cared for and cultivated. Uh, it won't grow to its full potential on its own. Um, the fruits of the Spirit that he mentions, they're best... Um, wait a minute, I've lost much spot. This is the problem with writing everything down as you mean to say. Um, so the analogy of the fruit of the Spirit is here because it can be cared and hopeful. Cared for. A tree doesn't, a tree doesn't just sprout fruit on its own, it needs to be fed and watered. Uh, so this is where I believe chapter 6 is best read in the context of the letter as a whole, but specifically in conjunction with the tail end of chapter 5. So with this in mind, let's read Galatians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 6 read, Brothers and sisters, if someone... Oh, I'll give you a chance to catch up, sorry. I don't have pauses written on my... my <laughs> I'll just see a paragraph and I'll wait. Okay. If you don't already have your Bible, here's what chapter, one to six, uh, chapter 6 verses 1 to 6 say. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. I read a few different commentaries. Just a second, my voice is gone. I'll just leave you with that thought that I read a few commentaries, so I did research. Um, I read a few different commentaries trying to get my head around the language that Paul would have used here in this letter. And from what I can gather, when he writes, if someone is caught in a sin, he's not talking about those who are willingly living sinful lives away from God. Uh, that they're turned away, they've got no interest. Instead, he's talking about those who fall into sin. He's calling on his community, the Galatians, to be a community with accountability at the centre of it. Other translations here use the phrase overtaken by a sin or a trespass. And his target audience here is believers who are being led astray. Whether that's through doctrinal missteps like these Judaizers is coming in and speaking his truths, or whether that's through another weakness of, 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 another weakness of the flesh like he talked about at the end of chapter 5. Either way, it's believed that Paul's intention here is to address those who've mistakenly fallen into sin. And then he tasks other believers with restoring that person gently and to carry each other's burdens. Not ignoring, but restoring to its former condition. The term Paul uses in the original language for restoring is likely a medical term that would have been just used to describe kind of the resetting of a dislocated bone or mending a break. Uh, there's a goal of putting back to the way it was intended. I also love that Paul says to do this gently, which makes sense, but in our current state of the world, everyone is so quick to be offended, as Pearl alluded to earlier. Um, I don't know how gentle, gentle, I don't know how gentle is gentle enough. The analogy of resetting a bone is beautiful here, though, because no matter how gently you try to reset a dislocated bone, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to hurt. It's going to be a little bit of pain with that end goal of making things better. Uh, we should approach with gentleness and care, but there's going to be a bit of hurt. So when we call someone to account and we try and uh, mention their sin, we know it's going to hurt them, but if we do it with the right gentleness and care, we can reach the goal that Paul's talking about here. With a dislocated bone, it's easy to approach it gently. You know it's going to hurt. You've got your own experience with an injury. Uh, so you have a bit of empathy as you go to do it. Sometimes when we approach people's sin, as Jesus points out, we can forget about the log in our own eyes. Uh, if we put ourselves in the position of someone else, we can both appreciate the need to be restored, but also take the tact to do so gently. Perhaps we can even consider our own tendencies to take offence. If we can start to view disagreement, being challenged, or admonishment as a positive, way, uh, positive, we can hopefully model this for others, and this allows a safe space in which to restore each other. 
Uh, it's clear in looking through Paul's other letters that he used admonition as a key, key characteristic of a Christian community. He broaches this topic in his letters to the Colossians and the Thessalonians. In these letters, Paul talks about how to grow more Christ-like. And his admonition, uh, admonishment is the key to the idea that we want to grow more as a community. To admonish is to reprimand. Now, today, the greatest social sin seems to be criticizing someone for their sinfulness or commenting on someone else's choices. We make shows for entertainment which celebrate people's sin. But if we condemn those shows, we, uh, we point out the sin, then we get criticized. Admonishment at its heart is loving someone enough to tell them they're wrong. At the heart of judgmentalism is pride and self-righteousness. If you're not willing to be admonished and challenged in what you're doing, uh, then you're going to put up this defense that goes, well, my pride says that I'm allowed to do what I want. I'm allowed to feel good. Um, in Paul's language, sorry, I'll skip ahead. It takes more love to confront someone in an area of sin than to avoid it. In Paul's language, there's a difference between rebuking and admonishing. We're meant to admonish with humility, meekness, and love, as he talks about in Colossians 3.12. The human heart always wants to justify itself. Therefore, when we are wrong, we always want to blame someone else. No one likes being admonished, even in love. We retreat to saying you don't have any right to judge. We need to pray to have soft and open hearts to receive teaching and admonishment. In the context of Colossians, Paul links admonishment with teaching. In Thessalonians, he links it to living in a Christian community which grows in love and Christ-likeness. Leaders need to be open to admonish, but brothers and sisters need to also be willing to teach and admonish one another. Uh, this is my first time doing this. As I said before, I'm very likely to get something wrong or phrase it poorly. So in the vein of admonition, please call me to account and I can address those concerns. Um, so these two passages I've just mentioned from Thessalonians and Colossians um, highlight just how important Paul views a sense of community and living under grace. And he's speaking into how this community should live. In the passage in Colossians, he again uses the phrase to bear with one another as he does in Galatians. Um, but he also accompanies us with a call to admonish resistance. So Colossians 3, 12, 17, to 3, 12 to 17 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, I think it's really important to put all these kind of Paulian passages together to get the sense that he's kind of talking about a holistic view he has as part of what he's been charged with, going, this is what a Christian community looks like. And I'd imagine that lots of the things he's raised would have been raised in his initial greetings with the Galatians, where he set up those churches, he would have started to already talk about some of these community foundations, um, and they've turned away from reminding them. In 1 Thessalonians, he begin, again implores the audience to accept the gift of salvation, and then immediately says that we should therefore encourage and build each other up, and in response to this, acknowledge those you care for and admonish you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-22 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. 
Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. In the context of this specific letter in Galatians, though, it's very possible the specific sin that Paul is commenting on is neglecting the role of the cross in salvation. But we see the way that Paul is seeking to admonish the community. He's backing up what he's saying with other references from, from the Old Testament. He's pointing out issues and he's keeping that are the community from God and attempting to restore them through his teachings and through Scripture. Returning specifically to focus on Galatians 6, when we consider the idea of bearing with one another, the language used here is different to later on when he talks about carrying a load. The language here with bearing is more like, uh, sorry, the language for carrying a load later on is more like a backpack. The language for bearing is more like a burden that requires two people to lift. It's kind of like if our sin came with one of those warning labels from Ikea that says a two-person lift on the side. Um, they're the kind of burdens we're to carry together. Um, historically, I think people in churches, not necessarily ours, but the wider church, have two responses to realizing someone is caught in a sin. Uh, we turn a blind eye and ignore it, or we come down really hard and make the person feel terrible and like they have to leave the church. Um, both are quite extreme ends of the spectrum, and I can't say that I've ever seen too much of the carrying of each other's burdens to the point where coming up with an example or analogy is really tricky. Um, so I'll, I'm going to try and make a really soft analogy because I really struggle to pick a specific one. Um, at times, I must confess, I'm not always the biggest advocate for our open announcement time. Uh, sometimes I put my dad hat on and go, my kids are being too loud. Or if we don't leave because announcement time's going this much longer, we're going to leave this much later. Luke is not going to get a nap. Sometimes I put my music director hat on and I go, are they going to cut a song because this announcement's just going too long? Um, but more often than not, I'm really grateful for the vulnerability people show when they get up the front. Um, I know that I'm not necessarily at the point where I feel comfortable sharing from the front in such a way. Uh, but I'm really thankful for the way Richard uses this announcement space. I admire Richard's vulnerability when he gets up and requests prayer for his struggles. You know, with TV, or specifically when Pearl heads overseas, he always comes up front and he requests prayer. He knows he can't carry those burdens alone. Um, now, I've not often been the one to go and check on how Richard's doing, but I imagine in our community we have people doing that, that are carrying that burden with him. Um, but the difference here is Richard is reaching out and asking for help. It's easier to share a burden when we're made aware of it. But what do we do when we see someone, when we see sin in someone else, and they don't see the need for help? Uh, I like the translation here in the NIV in verses three and four. It says, "If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So each one should carry their own load." There's a wrestle here with our intentions, our heart posture, when it comes to carrying one another's burdens. Carrying burdens isn't about ticking a box to go, yep, I've done that on my Christian bingo card. Our desire to bear with others must come from a heart for others. Because after all, carrying together still takes a load. You've got to be willing to share in that load and realize it's going to weigh you down too. Um, we need to be willing to take that toll, to ease the burden on our brother or sister. Not for our own glory, not to go, look how great I am and helping everybody. In fact, I think when we really break it down, lots of our sin can be aligned with our own pride and our own reliance on ourselves. Uh, we tend to fall into sin when our pride or ego is damaged or attacked. I find that as a parent, the times that I fall most short are when I have something I need to do that has no relevance to my children. Uh, I get less patient with them and closer to deadlines that I get. In fact, in preparing this sermon, I was really struck by the irony of how frustrated I was getting with my children because uh, I couldn't get time to go and write a sermon. Um, Crystalina takes forever to go to sleep. Uh, if you've ever talked to about Crystalina, he's probably told you that. Um, she takes ages to go to bed. And I'm trying to make time to cut out writing a sermon, which can only really happen when they're all asleep. Um, and I'm writing a sermon about humbling yourself enough to show love to others. 
My prideful self wanted to make time for me to show how well prepared I could be, to come across as eloquent and well researched, but I was putting my needs above theirs. If I'm just trying to get through bedtime to rush through it to do what I need to do, I'm not being present, I'm not being caring and loving in the way that I should. When I'm not able to do things for my own selfish ambitions, my pride takes a hit. If my focus from getting them to bed is to make time for me, then the fruits of the spirit like patience and gentleness that I would normally strive for will find it very hard to grow. Uh, I know by contrast that Paul's list at the end of chapter 5 of uh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. This is quite a tame example. Um, but if we see ourselves leaning further into what Paul describes as the desires of the flesh, we'll find it harder to bear fruits of the spirit. If we're intent on doing things on, on our own for our own glory, we will likely fall deeper into the desires of the flesh. The key here is humility. The call to love your neighbor as yourself only works when we humble ourselves and see ourselves as less of a priority than our neighbor. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. By their very nature, they require multiple parties. It's hard to show kindness to someone by yourself. You need someone to show it to. It's hard to show patience if you're only worrying about yourself. Uh, these fruits are all reliant on having someone else to demonstrate them to. Verse 6 in chapter 6 says, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. Uh, this is often referenced in sermons discussing the need to pay a pastor or preacher. When I try to look up little things about this, that's what came up. Um, but I disagree. I don't think Paul would feel the need to deviate from his thoughts in the rest of his letter to make a point about wages in the middle of his letter. I think instead he stated here that uh, just as we bear in the hard times, we should also share in the good things. We need to share what we've been learning. If someone has bared with us, we should then use that knowledge and what that felt like to bear with someone else. There should be a reciprocal relationship to accountability, rather than one where we act as lifesavers for those who are drowning, but ignore others when times are good. This is beneficial not only for the teacher, but also for the one who is taught to put in practice what they've learned. If, if you bear your burdens with someone else, how much better equipped will you be to return the favor? Continuing on in verses 7 to 10, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the journey of believers. In continuing these thoughts here, Paul's reminding us that what we set our hearts on, what we spend our time on, is what pours out of us. If we spend time establishing good patterns, good will come from it. As we make time and effort to love others, we'll be shown love in return. I feel like this is something we all inherently understand, but find really hard to live out. Uh, once I had kids, I started to more actively filter out the kinds of movies and TV I watch, to the point where now I struggle to watch anything with violence in it. Even Marvel movies, which have long been a favourite of mine, they can be an emotional and moral struggle to get through, and not just because the writing is getting worse. Uh, but what this has highlighted for me is the more I input images of violence into my brain, the more that my brain normalises it and accepts it as okay. It's the same with our life patterns. If we develop good patterns, that's what spills out of us. Similarly, I find the times where I develop good prayer and Bible reading habits, I'm able to engage better with others and be more considerate to their needs. And I want to clarify here that by good habits, I don't necessarily mean consistency, uh, but rather leaning into these times as an intentional seeking to know God more. Sometimes I can think of my Bible reading and prayer life as a to-do list, where I just treat my time as a ritual, much like Paul is addressing in this letter. And I need to be careful to make sure that my reading, Bible reading and prayer life extends from the reflection of my gratitude for God's grace, rather than just a, a need to-do list. From this grace, I can then do good for others. 
I love here too that Paul's call to be good especially highlights caring for other believers. Our mission or mindset could often go straight towards doing good for those outside the church, uh, those less fortunate. Um, yeah, we, we put our minds to going and helping those people. And I'm sure that our non-Christian friends could possibly describe us when they're pressed to define what, us makes, what makes us different. They might say, oh, they're really nice, they don't swear too often. They might even say that we do good. Paul's challenge here, though, is to do good especially to fellow believers. Um, not after you do good to non-believers or if you run out of non-believers, but especially to fellow believers. I know that I'm not done needing grace, love, and care. Um, if, you are, if you were asked to consider what makes Christians different to non-believers, would you say that they do good for fellow believers? Consider that instead, in light of loving your neighbor as yourself, how are you helping sow into our community amongst each other so that we can see others reap? What would reaping look like in our context? What would our church look like if we spent more intentional time each week helping each other grow through the way we interacted beyond just pleasantries and check-ins on a Sunday? Uh, we enabled ourselves a chance to go deep and bear our burdens. I know that one of Kyle's convictions in starting the hub was that he felt the format of church can be transactional, um, that we receive a message from the front and we take that away with us. Um, by contrast, I like to consider what it would look like within our congregation if we were focused on doing good amongst ourselves and not just the message from the front. If we could be building and sowing into each other's lives with intentionality. So we go out to outreach, it's an extension of habits that we've already cultivated within our church. Um, I don't think I have any answers as to how to do this or what it would look like, but it's a thought to consider in this transitional time for our church. Where do we want to have our efforts and energy focused? How can we move from a transactional system to a communal growth system within our congregation? Paul's letter closes with, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of Lord our Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. The commentaries and so on here about whether Paul comments on his large handwriting either due to his failing eyesight or for emphasis. I tend to agree with the latter, but he's emphasizing his point. Paul very likely would have had someone else write down this letter for him and scribe it. But by writing in his own hand, own hand here, he highlights his personal attachment to the letter. He concludes by readdressing his points from earlier in the letter. Those who seek to live to the law are merely doing it for their own appearances. In order to look good to others, their hearts simply aren't in it. Paul concludes that he will boast in nothing but the cross, as it's the only thing that matters, and that all his actions, words, and deeds should be a reflection of him being crucified with Christ. Paul actually talks about boasting quite a bit in his letters when he talks about the cross. A boast in this period had battle connotations. Armies would call out a ritual boast before they ran off into battle. Uh, it was to unify each other and to show their confidence in their weapons and their skills. There's an example in 1 Kings 20. It says, Egypt boasts, we will pursue them and draw our swords and destroy them. A boast was how you prepared yourself to charge ahead full of confidence. Boasting at a psychological level informs our identity. When push comes to shove, what do you boast in? What is it that gives you confidence? The earthly, shallow part of me might say, well, I can play guitar a little bit, or I'm a pretty good dad. If that's what I let validate me and dictate my work, it begins to form my identity. Every social media post is some kind of boast. 
Look how great my beach body looks. Look at all these friends I have. Look at this food I get to eat because of how hard I work. The problem with talking about these things is that we can always be overcome by the enemy in these fields. There's that nagging voice that says, sure, you can play guitar, but you can't play like John Mayer. Oh yeah, I guess you're a pretty good dad. Remember that one time at the shops where you were in the aisle and the kids were screaming and you couldn't control them? Uh, you didn't look so great that day. Paul instead insists that our boasting should come from only the cross. In Philippians 3.3 he says, We boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the cross. 2 Corinthians says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So what does it mean to boast in the cross? It means that we can boast not in what we do, but in what has been done for us. It means to look at the fact that Jesus already suffered beatings and being mocked and jeered before he won. The voice that tells us something better when we take pride in ourselves already tried that with Jesus and it was beaten. When God looked at us now... Hey baby, how you doing? I keep talking, almost on my last paragraph. Um, now I've got to find where that last paragraph was. Uh, so the voice tells us there's something better when we take pride in ourselves. We've already tried that with Jesus and his people. When God looks at us now, he sees what Jesus has done. And so the praise and applause we seek from the world when we boast now instead comes from God when we boast in Jesus. Our word, our validation, just like our salvation and justification, are not dependent on us. If ever there was something to boast in, that seems like it. Verse 15 says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. The arguing and disagreement that has plagued Galatians to this point to Paul is irrelevant. Just in case you get to the end of this letter and you still don't get it, Paul spells it out really clearly. There is no need for the law when it has been fulfilled through Jesus. Um, Mike Donaghy, who wrote the first song that we sang today, uh, he's an author, a Christian musician. He posted recently on Instagram, I don't change to be loved, I change because I already am, and so are you. Works and ritualism mean nothing without love as the catalyst for them. Just as Jesus has a heart for others, so too should we look to find opportunities to love others. To love your neighbor as yourself, whether through bearing one another's burdens, humbling yourself, or sowing into each other to reap a fruitful harvest, we should look to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our heart's desire should be to be a reflection of our freedom through grace. Our lives should change to an outpouring of love, not due to obligation to a set of laws, but as a response to the undeserved gift of love and being made right with our Creator. His grace is enough. And that is something worth boasting about. Now let's pray and finish off. Dear God, I thank you for the words of Paul. I thank you for the, the challenging nature they have. And I pray that we can be people who challenge each other in love, uh, with empathy and gentleness, that we can build each other up, but at the heart of all, that we can love others as yourself uh, and to love in the way that you love. Pray that that's a reflection of our church that is seen in the wider community. And pray for your help in doing this because we can't do it alone. You know my name. Amen. 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 Thank you.